you know, and I know with reparenting, one of the things that's hard is there's a lot of shame and guilt, you know, a lot of people come in and say, you know, I had great parents, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to feel bad, like I'm blaming them or shaming them. And there is enough shame and guilt with parenting as is, right? Even when you're a great parent, you feel like you're doing a terrible job. Okay, so today is a special, special episode. If you've been following me for a while, it's obvious I need lots of therapy. And after much of the overwhelming feeling like, I don't even know where to start to find the right one, my friend Cindy Robinson recommended me to Megan Gillespie late last year. She is the perfect blend of the science of traditional therapy with the more practical and grounding side of understanding and guiding the nuance within each of us. She specializes in attachment theory, cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal neurobiology, which is so cool. We're going to break some of it down today, and mindfulness. And my favorite part about her, she actually specializes also in highly sensitive people, which frankly is really hard to find as a specialty. She works with adults, she works with teens and uh, parents as well. So we've talked a lot about reparenting yourself in a more healthy way. I was so excited she said yes to coming on here and talking about it with you. And if you're interested in watching me unfold my own psychoses, please subscribe to allisonhair.com and get my weekly emails. Also, I want you to think about some of the conversations you've been having in your own circles. I mean, based on what I can tell and your feedback, we're all going through some massive transitions. I know if you're listening to this, you probably are as well. I mean, figuring out what you want, figuring out where your place is in the world, trying to find a new path. I would recommend sharing this episode with anyone and everyone you know that is seeking a more aligned path for themselves, and I'll thank you in advance for doing it. Because honestly, that is how culture changes as we start to make these changes in our own lives and communities. Here is my chat with my actual therapist, Megan Gillespie. Yes, so today we are talking about reparenting. And what I did not realize, can you can you help me define reparenting? Yes. So reparenting is essentially giving yourself what you didn't receive as a child. So when I was looking up reparenting, what I thought was interesting is that reparenting is also a controversial type of therapy where the therapist shows up as the the parent. Mm-hmm. Is that true? So yes, and it, it, reparenting as a therapy is a little bit different. So a lot okay. of people define it now um, as you know giving yourself what you needed as a child. So it doesn't have to just be done with a therapist. It's something you can kind of heal yourself in that way as well. So one of the things that I feel is happening now culturally mm-hmm. is that everyone's anxiety seems to be spun out of control. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you're a therapist. <laughs> what do you see here? Oh my gosh. So what I notice right now, especially with the pandemic, is that if there were any cracks in the foundation before, putting a little bit of pressure is real. I mean, people are caving in and that's what's happening. And I think in the beginning of the pandemic, it was, okay, we can do this for a couple months. And then people did it and people did it and everything is fine. And then when it kept going 
and going and going. And especially being home with our family members really put added pressure. And when you think about your partner, your kids, you know, our families are really where we heal. You know, we can be hurt in relationships and we also heal in relationships. And this can get tricky because these people who we love and adore and are so close with are also the people that press all of our buttons. So you think of other relationships like our friendships, you know, we have some distance. We can go home, kind of, you know, shut off the phone, close the door and get a little bit of space. With our family members, that is not the case. And so if we can shift kind of how we see our family members, you know, I always say, you know, my husband is my spiritual partner and he will bring to the surface everything and anything I have that has yet to be healed. What does that mean? Can you pause right there? Yes. So when you say my husband is my spiritual partner, mm-hmm. he's showing up to show you what you need to work on, if I'm yes. understanding that. Can you yes. can you unpack so, this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we often go into relationships, you know, for instance, we'll say with a spouse. And we look to them to heal us and we're wanting them to bring to us everything we need. And so a lot of times, especially in modern Um, relationships. We want our partner to be our best friend. We want our partner to be, you know, our romantic partner. We want them to be, you know, the parent we never had. We want them to be all the things. And this is once again, a breeding ground for disappointment because they can't be everything. If you think about friendships, you have lots of different friends that meet many different needs and it's by design. That's great. Um, One person can't meet every need. Now, that being said, when we are in partnership with our spouse, you know, they're going to bring up and trigger all the things within us. And you can, you know, I'll say triggers are your treasures. When you get triggered Hmm. and people say, what, what is a trigger? I can always tell Hmm. when someone is triggered because when their response is completely out of proportion with what happened, that's a trigger. That means that is something, you know, usually from childhood, but from earlier in their life, something usually a a message that's been reinforced over and over and over again. So it's a tender spot. So it's, you know, almost you think of a wound and we've kind of put a bandaid on it and it's fine, but something or someone has now ripped open that bandaid and now the person's going, ah, right? That's what you're seeing in their behavior. And we see it with our kids as well, right? The intensity of their feeling shows us, or, you know, their behavior shows us what they're feeling. And so when, you know, I used to work with couples and when I would see, you know, they'd go back and forth over something that seemed kind of innocuous. And one of the partners is saying, you know, I I just don't understand. This is so stupid. This is so silly. Like, you know, just get over it. And, you know, we are, you know, normal, rational beings. And so if someone is responding in that way, that tells you there's something deeper underneath the surface. And so if you can get curious and ask questions instead of getting into this match over, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. You really get to that person's story. And in our in our homes, that's that's really what we want to be doing with our kids and our spouse is getting to their stories, being curious, being open, so we can hear what's going on, and that's what's what increases connection, and that's ultimately what we want, right? Is that authentic yeah. connection? But safety has to come first, and that's where I see people kind of getting in trouble. I wonder what the difference is between there are some people. If I'm thinking about past relationships that would bring out the worst in me. Mm -hmm. So can you explain the difference between 
a trigger mm-hmm. and this is not the right person. Mm-hmm. So one thing you might, so one thing that comes up a lot. This could be for any relationship. Yes. One thing that can come up a lot in therapy is, you know, I'll have women that'll come in and say, you know, this relationship didn't work out. I I'll, I always end up with the same guy or, you know, mm. maybe it's a boss, but it's like these patterns continue to show up. And you want to think about instead of looking externally of, I want to change my environment. I want to change the person. I want to change whatever. It's thinking about what is this challenging person situation, whatever it happens to be. What is the lesson here? What am I meant to learn from this? So for instance, if you have, um, you know, maybe it's a narcissistic partner, boss, whatever, but this prototype keeps showing up. What is it that you need to learn? Maybe it's you need to set boundaries. Maybe it's you need to stand up for yourself. Maybe you need to protect yourself more, you know, whatever it happens to be, but there is a lesson there. And when you learn the lesson, you move on and you don't continue to get in that same relationship. Or if you do, you handle it differently. And so that's really what therapy is about is unpacking our stories to say, okay, what lessons are here and how can we change our behavior or our response so that we're getting a different outcome? So when I think about when I when I think about reparenting mm-hmm. or our childhoods in general it's easy to recognize the trauma that comes with an abusive parent a narcissistic parent an alcoholic parent but I think that there are so much more nuances Mm-hmm. And I learned this myself through Cindy Robinson, our, our mutual contact and mm-hmm. frequent guest on Culture Changers <laughs> podcast. I love Cindy. I love her too. And, you know, I think I remember having a conversation with her and talking about, you know, my mother telling me, you know, never rely on a man to make your money. Mm-hmm. And she labeled it as trauma. And I was like, that's not trauma. You know, like she just said, it was just her experience. She's like, no, it's a form of trauma. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to uh, um, give permission to us to recognize whether it's trauma or not, but something that was so significant that we diminish Mm -hmm. in adulthood and needs to take a deeper look. Yes. So we talked about this right before we started. And just, I mean, I want to kind of go back to the nuance. And I found that as well is there's the obvious, like, you know, my father was an alcoholic, or my mother Mm -hmm. was a narcissist. And then what I find more often than not is, you know, emotionally absent parents, parents that are busy with work, parents that can't emotionally attune. And what does that mean to emotionally attune? So when I'm attuning to you, I know you, I'm watching, I'm looking at your body language, your tone of voice, all of that to really see what is the need and then how do I meet that need? And from an emotional standpoint, that is honoring whatever you happen to be feeling and really trying to connect with you and help you in that moment. And that's where I see as parents, it's really difficult. And a lot of it is cultural, you know, and I know with reparenting, one of the things that's hard is there's a lot of shame and guilt, you know, a lot of people come in and say, you know, I had great parents, you know, I I don't, I don't want to feel bad, like I'm blaming them or Mm -hmm. shaming them. And there Mm -hmm. is enough shame and guilt with parenting as is right, even when you're a great parent, you feel like you're doing a terrible job. And a lot of it is in our culture of how we are taught to look at emotions, you know, they're stupid, they're silly, get rid of them, you know, get over it. Um, 
you know, putting babies or little kids in rooms, you know, shutting the door and just letting them cry it out, um, you know, temper tantrums, things like that. And we've all experienced that at some point or another. And I think there is a cultural shift happening right now. And you're seeing it in the way, you know, new parenting modalities that are coming out. But for many of us, we were raised with the, you know, get over it. You're being too sensitive. Mm. You're being dramatic. And so this felt sense of my feelings are too much and I need to shove down, push all of those feelings aside because it scares my caregiver or it creates distance with my attachment figure. And therefore, in order to... What is an attachment figure? So attachment figure, so your parents, you know, your caregivers would be your attachment figure. So attachment is the idea that, you know... When babies come into the world, they are wired for connection and belonging. And as parents, you know, whoever your caregivers may be, they are literally keeping you safe, right? Your survival depends on these caregivers. And so we have an attachment system that keeps us in proximity to our caregivers. So um, what they call protest behaviors, those are behaviors Mm. that keep us in close contact. So with babies, you think crying right? So when a baby cries, that is their way of saying, I need something, come to me, I need your aid, right? Now, if you look at modern parenting approaches, many of them say, you know, ignore the crying because we want to teach the child not to cry. Well, there's a reason they're crying, right? And being able to attune to them and see what's the need is really important. So when you're constantly ignoring a baby's cries, the baby learns, I can't depend on my caregiver. And then that translate, we sort of universalize these messages and it becomes, I can't depend on others. I, you know, the world is not a safe place. Wow. Wow, that's so, it feels (laughs) like such a minor... Mm-hmm. thing for just a sliver of time. Yeah. Well, and you think um, with the brain, 25% of the brain is developed when a baby's born. And from you know when they're born to age four, 90% is developed during that time. So those first few years are really critical in laying that brain architecture and with the nervous system. Can we talk about how we're screwing up our kids though? Because, <laughs> you know, like I'm thinking okay, I really screwed this up, you know, like I'm past that age, you know, but I, but I do think there's so much overlap of what you're talking about that consciously it makes a lot of sense what you're saying, Mm -hmm. but then there's the shame and guilt Mm -hmm. that we're screwing our kids up. Yeah. And we are, you know, like why, I I don't know where to, where to go with this. So, you know, one thing to, to be aware of is there's rupture and repair. So you're never going to be a perfect parent, right? And that's something Mm -hmm. to normalize. We are not going to get it right. And that's in any relationship, right? Think about your relationship with your friends, with your partner. It's not going to be perfect all of the time. It shouldn't be because that's where those growth moments happen. Mm -hmm. So really focusing more on the repair. You know, when I have, so every mother I've ever spoken to has had that moment where they lose it on their kids, right? Mm. Or their partner, whoever it happens to be. We have that. It is totally normal. 
Really what you want to do in those moments is regulate your own nervous system and come back and repair that moment. And fortunately, we know with the way the brain works is there is something called neuroplasticity, which is essentially we can rewire the brain. So regardless of what happened, you know, in your childhood or what happened, you know, let's say you're a parent and your kids are older and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, it's okay. You can repair those things. And so I don't, you know, like you said, I don't want to get into the shame blame piece of like, oh my gosh, I'm messing up my kid because actually that anxiety is going to keep you from truly connecting with your child or with your partner and can be the biggest killer of connection. Mm. So having compassion (sighs) is the number one thing in parenting or really any relationship is you've got to start with self-compassion. So if you're going to think of it a mantra though, because I'm, I'm thinking about the parents, myself included, or, you know, let's be real, this is all for me. <laughs> this, is, this podcast is all a big, long therapy session for myself. Um, but apparently some other people are benefiting too. But I'm thinking about what are the things that we tell ourselves when we start to get into that shame spiral? Mm-hmm. Is there a mantra? Is there a something that can help us? You know, I love what you said about rupture and repair Mm -hmm. and that, okay, it's all part of the course. Where do I go from here? But what can we tell ourselves that is more compassionate Mm -hmm. than, you know, just being in that spiral and being angry and crying and trying to figure out what to do next? Yeah. So I think the number one thing I see that happens is once again, those old wounds come up for people, especially in parenting. Because if you didn't know where your childhood stuff was, you see it play out in your own parenting. And so I have a lot of clients that'll come in and say, I don't really remember how I was parented, or I don't really know what the Mm -hmm. messages I received were. You can see them in those parenting moments. So when you get into those shame spirals, I want you to think about what are the messages I need to hear now and what are the messages that Allison at six years old needed to hear? And because what's happening is when our kids get dysregulated, so when they start throwing that temper tantrum, the part of us that was not seen and recognized as a six-year-old, as a seven-year-old, whatever age it was, starts to come up. So for many, many, I would say the overwhelming majority of us, we were taught not we, we don't know how to deal with big emotions because mm-hmm. once again, they were, you know, push them down, mm-hmm. go in the room, get yourself together, be happy, happy, happy. And so when it comes up in our child, our, our own nervous system gets dysregulated and we start to get frantic because we don't know what to do. We just want it to go away. And so the first thing is to focus on yourself. And that seems a little paradoxical because it's like, okay, shouldn't I be controlling my kid? What we know with polyvagal theory, which is essentially, you know, how the nervous system works is that the best number one parenting tool you have in your toolbox is your calm presence. So your own regulated nervous system is the number one thing you have because our nervous systems play off each other. So our kids come into the world, they're not fully developed yet, right? So they have, they feel and they sense everything and they have no idea what to do with it. And so when they become overwhelmed with an emotion, you see it in their behavior, hence the temper tantrums, the meltdowns, things like that. And so what they're looking for from you in those moments is they need help, right? So joining with them and reminding them you're safe, right? Now here's the here's the tricky part. 
if you don't feel safe in your body, it's going to be impossible to help your child feel safe in theirs. And so the first step is always learning how to build a relationship with your body, learning those cues of, oh my gosh, I'm becoming dysregulated. Because what I notice is, you know, you can give a million tips and tricks in the world of, you know, um, how to calm the body. But if you're waiting until you're a level 12, right, and you're literally, you know, steam's coming out of your head, those tricks, you know, taking deep breaths, things like that are going to take a lot more time, Mm. right? It's like if a car is going 120 miles per hour and you put on the brakes, it'll stop the car, but it's going to skid, right? It's going to take a while to stop. And so knowing the cues in your body that kind of tell you, "Uh uh-oh, I'm starting to feel anxious or "Uh uh-oh, I'm starting to get kind of angry, right? Noticing them in the very beginning and then starting to, you know, calm the body using deep breaths, mantras, things like that is going to be a lot more beneficial than waiting until you're already screaming, right? Yeah. So how can you talk to us about regulating your nervous system? Because I know there's you mentioned like three different levels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yes, so there are three different levels. And I, I you know, we'll kind of put it in basic terms yeah. um, for, you know, the nature of the podcast. But you think of, so you have um, the vagal nerve, and then that's the longest nerve in the body. And it runs from the top of your head all the way down. And you've got three different levels. So think of a house. So you've got this comfy, cozy house and the top layer, you'll say, um, like your green light, so to speak, is safety and connection. That's where safety and connection live. And when you're there, you're able, you know, you feel good in your body, you feel safe, everything feels okay, and you're open to connection, right? Now, you have something called neuroception. And neuroception, which was coined by Dr. Stephen Porges, that is basically you're always scanning for cues of safety and danger, always, this kind of happens below the surface. So your thinking mind isn't really detecting this. This is just always, so think of an alarm system in your house, right? It's always there. It's always going, but unless it's going off, you don't really notice it. And so that's what's happening in our bodies. And so we're scanning for cues of safety and danger. And we, if we find one, our sympathetic nervous system starts to flare. So that is, you know, starts pumping adrenaline and getting ready for that fight or flight response. When that happens, you know, the ideal is that the whatever the threat may be is addressed and you go right back into that safety mode. If that's going on over and over and over again for too long, you'll bump down into dorsal, which dorsal is kind of your red light zone. That's when the body says, I'm overloaded and I'm just going to shut down. Mm. So that's where kind of your depression, you know, that it lives down there. Now, the important thing to note is you have to go from the top to bottom. So you go from green to yellow to red. And then if you're at red, you got to go back through yellow or that um, sympathetic state, which is kind of a mobilized state. So think of anxiety, anger, you know, you have a lot more um, energy in your system. Then you bump back to green. So it's important to remember that because people, you know, if you are at that dorsal state where you're feeling overwhelmed and shut down, you're going to have to pass through that kind of anxious state first. So don't think, you know, something's wrong with my body because now all of a sudden I'm feeling, you know, anxiety instead of feeling great and calm and wonderful again. But the important thing is safety and connection live in the same spot. So if you truly want to connect with others, you've got to feel safe in your body first. So it always starts with you. And our kids have to feel safe in order to connect with us as well. And so in parenting, being able to create that safety with your child where they can come to you no matter what's going on is really important. So I'm wondering, 
what it looks like in real life to go from red back through yellow Mm -hmm. to get to green. Mm -hmm. Because I'm thinking about, you know, like, I don't know, I feel like I'm always in an anxious state or, Mm -hmm. you know, a wound up state. So I don't know where I am, (laughs) you know, like, so how do I, (laughs) you know, what what does it look like in real life? Mm -hmm. So we're all often moving, you know, from green to yellow to red and back to yellow and to green in in a specific moment that could happen. So, Mm. you know, one example might be, okay, you go to, let's say, dinner with friends and you leave, you feel great, you know, you're in a green state, you're excited, you're excited to go and connect with people, you sit down, and then all of a sudden, the conversation steers to something um, that makes you uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're comparing yourself to your friends, maybe all of a sudden you feel inadequate, and then all of a sudden you're in yellow, you're in sympathetic, and you're feeling inadequate, you feel like you're not meant to be there, you've got all these messages in your head, maybe they're messages, you know, once again, those core messages from earlier in life of Mm. like, I'm not good enough. um, And that starts to flare. Now, if you aren't able to pull yourself out of that, you know, you might get home and really start ruminating, you get into the shame spiral, you Mm -hmm. can't pull yourself out. And now all of a sudden, you're in that dorsal state, I just want to get into bed, I want to pull up the covers, I don't want to go anywhere tomorrow. I feel, you know, awful. So that's what it might look like. But then all of a sudden you get up, you're feeling a little better. Maybe your husband says, hey, let's go take a walk. You know, you take a walk, you talk about it. Now all of a sudden, you know, as you're talking, you might get anxious and you're once again overthinking it. And then he says some things, you calm down, and now you're back to green. You guys are connecting and you feel better and the rest of the day is fine. Hmm. So what do you see, um, what do you see comes up as patterns that originate from childhood, like you and your practice, you know? Yes. I would say, you know, one of the big core messages I see, and I work primarily with women, so I see this a lot with Mm -hmm. women, is um, feeling like they need to change who they are to be in connection with others. Mm. So, you know, as kids, we are often, and I mean, now we know this and we hear this a lot and it's pretty much everyday language, kind of the difference between, you know, um, praise and, and encouragement, you know, and, but when I was growing up, you know, we got a lot of praise for accomplishment. We got mm-hmm. a lot of praise. And I think many of us did, mm-hmm. right? And well-meaning parents who are like, yay, you did a great job. You made A's or yay, you did this. And so what's seen from the child's perspective is, you know, I receive love when I do X, Y, Z. So another area this comes up um, with eating disorders, I see this a lot where I receive love for being the cute one. I receive love Mm. for being the beautiful one. And so as parents being careful, you know, what we overemphasize with our kids, because while it's well-meaning, if I, as the child perceive that as my value, my worth comes from, you know, fill in the blank, when inevitably we don't make the A or when inevitably we make it to, you know, our teenage years and all of a sudden our skin breaks out, we start to gain weight, you know, whatever it is all of a sudden that's being threatened. And now I've got to go do all these things in order to pull myself back to baseline to get that love. And you see it play out in adulthood all the time, you know, with that accomplishment, I need the success, I need the house, I need the money, I need the brand name labels, I need whatever. And it's this, I have to do these things to receive love. And that that all it stems on is how do I get approval? 
often, you know, I mean, there's many different layers to it, but a lot of times it's, I want to be seen and I want to be in connection with others. And really when you boil it down, we all want to be in connection with others. We want to be loved. Mm -hmm. We want that approval. And so you see people do lots of different things in order to get it. And, And a lot of times our coping mechanisms and the things that we employ are things we used in childhood that worked within our own family. Mm. But then when we get older and we have our own families, it doesn't always work the same way, or maybe it's a work situation. And all of a sudden we feel stuck because it's like, I've been doing all these things and they always worked in the past and now it's not working. Mm-hmm. What do I do? Is that growing out of of these mechanisms, these coping mechanisms? Because I feel like, I mean, you work with a lot of high-powered female executives, people that are high functioning and, mm-hmm. you know, successful in in their roles. And I imagine, you know, all of it seems to come down to that negative self-talk. Mm-hmm. Is that it? So there can be a lot of different things. And I guess there are probably some that are stored in your body as well. Oh, you know? absolutely. Many of our messages, I mean, our narratives are definitely stored in our bodies. And that's why, and we talked about this, you know, um, before we, we started mm. that with parenting, you know, that's one of the tough things is we might know something on a cognitive level. We may have read the parenting book or we may have read the, you know, steps to success or mm. whatever it happens to be. And then when we get in the moment and we get triggered, all of a sudden, all of that goes out the window and we're yelling or we're, whatever that old default pattern is, we revert back to. And it's because that circuitry, once again, is wired in really early. And the way the brain works, you have the limbic system and then you have the cortical region. And that cortical region, that top layer doesn't finish developing until age 25. And our limbic system is where our emotions, you know, are all lie. And when we get triggered by something, when that sympathetic nervous system starts to flare and we see danger, the cortical region goes offline, which means that's where logical decision making, is that the executive thing, function, yes, right? All of that goes offline. And now your limbic system or that emotional part of the brain is in the front seat driving. And when that happens, you know, once again, all the research in the world goes out the window mm-hmm. because we don't have access to it. And that's what happens in anxiety with kids. You know, I'll have kids who struggle with test anxiety. And because once again, that anxiety flares, the executive, you know, region goes offline, that cortical region. And all of a sudden, all that access to information goes offline. And they're like, (gasps) I feel stuck. I feel hijacked. And that happens to us all the time. And so the number one reason you hear people say, you know, take a deep breath or get into your body is because you've got to feel safe in order to get that top layer of the brain back online in order to think through, okay, how do I problem solve? How do I, you know, all those things you already know how to do are offline. And that's what frustrates people is they say, you know, I know what to do. I know logically I shouldn't have Mm -hmm. done this. But then X, Y, you know, then my kids started screaming and all of a sudden I'm yelling, you know, Mm -hmm. why does that happen? It happens because all that research doesn't matter. No amount of parenting books can help you with that piece until you can get your body regulated. So that's why you'll hear a lot of people say, um, use body-based practices as kind of your first line of defense. And the breath is a great one because, you know, you think of the breath, just taking a deep breath. And the important thing to note is you want the 
exhale to be slower than your inhale, because that will trigger this parasympathetic nervous system. It'll slow down. It's like the brake system of the body, slow down the body. And that brings everything back online. You're able to think more clearly. And it takes a few breaths. I mean, it's not like it's yeah. like you do it one breath and all of a sudden <laughs> magically everything's better, but that's the quickest way to slow down the body. And so pairing breathing with anything, whether it's yoga, whether it's like taking a mindful walk, whether it's just, you know, sitting, whatever it happens to be, that can help slow down the body really quickly. So how do you guide people to begin rewiring this? So it sounds like these body-based practices are so obvious, you know, Mm -hmm. but sometimes we don't feel like we have time or access or Mm -hmm. just not in the mood. Yes. (laughs) I mean, like you want to be angry. Yes. You want to go through those emotions. How do you begin rewiring? So one is to normalize it takes time because I feel like, you know, it took you however many years to lay the framework for what you've got Mm -hmm. now to rewire that. It's going to take some time. You know, it doesn't happen overnight. And so one, normalizing that because I know people can get frustrated like, oh, I mean, even though I knew that that wasn't, you know, that wasn't going to happen overnight, I'm frustrated because I want it to. And so recognizing and giving yourself grace and compassion that it's going to take a little time and that's okay. And to recognize even the small steps that you're making. So with body-based practices or really any, you know, skill set you're trying to cultivate, you want to do small steps each day. And you want to give yourself credit for it. So building that self-trust is going to be really important because for a lot of people who have, you know, deep, deep inner wounds, they've lost connection with themselves and don't trust themselves. And so building self-trust. So it might be, I would say, start with something really small. So even two minutes a day, right? Some promise that you make to yourself, I'm going to show up and I'm going to do this two minutes a day. So make it under 10 because you want it to be something that you can actually do each Mm day. Um, One I'll tell clients is doing a check-in three times a day. So it might be just a few deep breaths before, you know, when you're having breakfast or your coffee, Mm -hmm. you know, I like to pair it with something I'm already doing. So it doesn't feel like something extra I'm laying layering on top. Hmm, That's a good, uh, that's a good trick. Yes. (laughs) Um, Another one. So three times a day. So when I'm having my coffee, maybe I'm checking in with my body. I'm taking a few deep breaths. Maybe at lunch when I'm sitting down to eat my lunch, I'm once again, checking back in with my body, taking a few deep breaths. Then again, at dinner before bed while you're laying in bed. that's great too, because of course it helps wind the body down to go to sleep. So something that's going to feel manageable. Um, Another trick that can help you get out of your head and into your body. So with anxiety, we're stuck in our head, right? We've got all of these spiraling thoughts. So when you start to notice that a quick one is called five, four, three, two, one. So like the Mel Robbins thing. Yeah. (laughs) So five things that you see in the room, four things you hear, mm. three things you can touch. So maybe it's like clothing or the cushion under your seat, um, two things that you smell, one thing that you taste. And so really that's designed to once again, bring you back into what's actually that happening. That sounds like a distraction technique though. Well, it's helping you get back into the room. Mm. So when you're in your head, you're thinking about something, usually something in the future, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've got all these things to do. Yes. Right. And so it's getting you out of the future and pulling you back back into where I am now. Right now, I'm on the couch. Right now, everything's okay. Right now, I see, you know, my son across the room. Right now, I see, you know, so it's helping you bring yourself back to now. And usually for most people, what's happening now is perfectly fine. It's all these projections and thoughts Mm -hmm. that they have about the future Mm -hmm. that, of course, haven't even happened 
are what's causing a lot of the distress. There are so many nuggets of wisdom here that I'm so excited to employ. (laughs) What do you know that you wish other people could know? I think one thing that I've learned, and this is through my own journey, because of course we're all, you know, getting better each and every day, Mm. is that starting from within, because I know, you know, in my 20s, especially like looking outward at what can I change, what can I perfect, what can I... And starting inward and recognizing, just calming myself. You know, we were talking about this when I was pregnant. My number one goal was just stay calm, right? Manage my own anxiety, my own stressors. Because I think with, you know, we talked about reparenting. With parenting, there's so much stress about how to do it. And you got to do this. You got to do that. And you can't eat this during pregnancy. And, you know, breastfeeding or not breastfeeding, you know, all of that. And there's so much stress and anxiety about doing it right. If you can just focus on having grace and compassion and talking to yourself, and we kind of touched on this, but really changing the way you speak to yourself, because the way you speak to yourself is going to come out in how you speak to others. It's going to come out in your relationships. So if you are really judging yourself hard, that's going to come out in your parenting. That's going to come out at your spouse. That's going to come out at your friends or work or whatever it happens to be. And so if you can change that dialogue with yourself to one of compassion of when you make a mistake, for instance, a quote unquote mistake, and I say, you know, mistakes and quote unquote failures are always opportunities for growth because you can't learn without making some mistakes. And if you can normalize that as part of the process and say, I'm learning, it's going to change the way you move into things. Because if you look at mistakes and catastrophize and, oh my gosh, that means I'm terrible. Nobody's going to like me. Everybody, you know, I'm going to get fired. Mm. You're not going to be willing to step into your power and take the risks and move into new experiences that are going to get you to where you ultimately would like to be. And you're going to stay stagnant. And then that's going to create its own level of distress. So that is our own block, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Is that it? I mean, often our self-talk, it's self-talk is a huge one because it's often not what's actually happening. Mm. It's what we've got going on in our head. And if we can have compassion for ourselves, we're much more likely to have compassion for others. You know, we can't give to someone else what we don't already carry. Mm -hmm. And so focus on, you know, and it sounds simple, but of course, this is really hard to do in practice. It's hard in practice, yeah. Um, And so even recognizing, once again, when you make small steps, you know, when you move into something that feels challenging and maybe you do make a mistake, maybe it didn't go perfect and you say to yourself, that's okay. You know, I I stepped into it and I did something that was challenging and for me that was enough, right? Mm. That was the growth. That's a great reframe. And next time it's going to be even better. And I think for many of us, that is so hard, right? We don't want... Why are we so down on ourselves? Do you remember, I remember growing up and, you know, people would say... And this is so innocuous, but it is a big indicator of how things were. People would say, Allison, you're so skinny. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I'm fat. Mm-hmm. Why do we always reject, even from a little, you know, like even from a little uh, little girl or like, you're so pretty. Oh, no, not me. Or don't look at me. Mm-hmm. I don't have makeup today. Or don't look at my nails. I didn't get them done. Yeah. Because we're busy doing other shit that's more important <laughs> than getting your nails done, you know? Yes. Like, I wonder... Why are we always diminishing ourselves? Is that cultural? 
And it goes, you know, like we we continuously do this to ourselves. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a good point. And we kind of touched on that a little bit, but that it's not just parenting, right? There's also the greater culture that we receive these messages and our parents receive these messages, which is where we get them from, right? And I think it's this feeling of we have to show up a certain way in order to be loved. You know, the Mm. other piece that goes back to the emotions is think about when you're a kid and you are complete, you know, you're throwing a tantrum or you're really upset about something and it feels really important to you in that moment. And then your parent feels overwhelmed and they send you to your room and say, don't come out until, you know, you're ready to talk about it or don't come out until you have a happy face. And think about it, when you're already distressed and you're already feel completely out of control, you're scared, you're fearful, and now you're alone in those feelings. You know, it just increases that blame, that shame. And the messages we receive are, I'm bad. Something about me is bad, is unworthy, and I need to change myself in order to stay in connection with the people around me. And once again, as parents, you know, we don't, nobody means to send these messages, but it can feel scary as a kid to have these big feelings and not know what to do with mm. them. So as a parent, it's a really important to remember you you don't have to do these, you know, really complicated tricks or tips or, you know, whatever, it's really your presence is the most important piece. Mm. So your calm presence, that alone tells your kid, you know, you might be having big feelings, but they don't scare me and I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be here with you as you move through it. And what we find, and even in partnerships, you know, not just with kids, but just your presence is enough. And I think we undervalue that a lot. And, you know, that's what you know, often happens with the therapeutic relationship is what you're offering. The biggest, you know, through research, we know the biggest indicator is the relationship and having that calm presence, somebody that's going to be there and kind of be the anchor as you, you know, when you're feeling out of control, what that tells you is, you know, these feelings must be manageable because the person across from me is able to sit with it Mm. and they're okay, which means I'll be okay. And, you know, really great, you know, I mean, I have my own mentors and healers and therapists and people I go to as well. I mean, every, everybody should, and you internalize those voices, you know, even when I'll have moments of, oh my gosh, you know, how's it going to go? What if I can't do this? You know, we always have moments of that and I can hear their voice kind of coaching me, you know, it's okay. You'll be okay. Stay calm. Take a few deep breaths, you know, and that's what you want is to internalize those messages and start overriding the system that says you can't do it. Here we go again. Mm -hmm. This is going to be another example of you making a mistake, you know, whatever the message may be for Mm. you is that that's what we're trying to override. I've been fighting that a lot lately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And, I, you know, I'd love to ask you a personal question because you're a new mom. Yeah. yeah. So you have an almost eight month old, you know, but you've worked with children, you know, mm-hmm. you've worked in education, you uh, are working in therapy, working with a lot of mothers. Now that you're on the mother's side, mm-hmm. what do you know now having a, having a son, being a mother that you you couldn't have learned otherwise? Oh, man. I think there's been a couple lessons. One, I've recognized how much, and I knew this, but now, I mean, of course, I know it on a whole different level, but mom guilt, a feeling like, you know, no matter how great you are, and even once again, from a cognitive level, you know you're doing all the things, you know your child, you know, Jack's doing great, you know, 
And there's still this feeling of you should always be doing more. And it was funny. I was actually um, talking with my OBGYN about this and we were talking about this new group I'm doing. And um, she said, you know, honestly, the thing that I see with all moms is in our culture, we've been taught that as moms and as women, we should be able to do it all. And we run ourselves ragged. And even when the support is there, and even when the husband is, you know, what can I do or partner? Mm -hmm. What can I do? How can I help? It's being able to receive. And I thought, oh, yes. And I noticed that with myself as well as having to fight that tendency to want to do it all and being able to receive and accept the support that's there. Mm. So let's talk about this group. So Mm -hmm. this is a new thing for you. So you are in private practice, Mm -hmm. but you are starting to do some offerings that are really powerful for mothers, for executive women, for women. Can you tell us more about it? Yes. So my finding balance in motherhood, and this is out of a lot of, I mean, like you said, I, my first master's was in teaching. So I taught, I trained teachers, I did parenting groups. Um, second master's was in counseling and now I do, you know, I have a private practice and do therapy and just from what I've seen from all areas, from working with kids, from working with moms and now being a mom and all of these pieces. And once again, what I found, you know, with my own experience and with clients is that really diving into your narrative and finding out, figuring out how to regulate yourself has the most powerful effect on everybody in your world you know, your child, your spouse, your, you know, work relationships, friends, whoever it may be, it has such, you know, how we show up in the world affects everyone. And even from the standpoint of when you show up as a mother in a different way, you give other permission, you give permission to other mothers to say, okay, I need to set some boundaries. You know, Mm -hmm. I need to do some self-care, you know, and I think, and I'm sure you have some, and I have some as well, friends who give you permission and say, you know, you don't have to make excuses. Like, you need some self-care. Don't show up to the playgroup. Don't show up to mm-hmm. the, you know, whatever it happens to be. And I think that's so important. And we heal in community and we need other people to help us because this is deep, powerful, you know, soul work we're mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. It's not something I love that, that you're doing this. I you love know, that you're doing this. It's not an easy, you know, here we're going to 10 step process. We're going to throw on the band aid and here we go. We're going to keep going. We need powerful communities of women helping us do this work because it is powerful work. And so, um, yeah, I created a group that's basically synthesizes everything I've learned through my career, through my own experience and helping mothers see this. Cause I mean, even recently as a couple years, like some of the things I've learned, I'm like, Oh my gosh, if every mom knew this, if every woman knew this, it would be a total game changer Mm -hmm. and learning how to do it. But once again, it's not a, okay, you know, I take the deep breath and magically everything's better. It takes time to rewire these messages that we've received and and we need support along the way. So it's a virtual group. So I wanted, and it's, this one is not considered therapy. I call this a masterclass because I think this really is something every woman needs, right? It's not just if you've had a really challenging, you know, childhood. It's not if you've, you know, got kids that are really challenging. It's for any mom. You know, Mm -hmm. I think we all deserve that encouragement and support. And so, yeah, so the groups start in January, late January. And, um, and I've actually had a number of women reach out and say, Hey, I actually really want to do this. And I have a number of friends that want to do it with me. Can we create our own group? And so, you know, if that's you, that's also a possibility. That's a great idea. 
Yeah. Well, I have some that are like, man, we all want to do this together. Yeah. And that, and you know, it's not, can we do it at a time? Maybe that's not offered, you know, on the website. Can we all kind of come together and see what works with you and create our own group? So yes, that is available as well. But really, I just want to make sure this is accessible and that women have, you know, this offering. It's going to be a mixture of, you know, group support and time with the group and then also video modules and workbook and things that when you leave the group, you have something to go back to and say, okay, you know, we learned this practice. Let me watch the video so I can remember what to do. Mm, That sounds amazing. How can people work with you otherwise? Yes. So you can go to my website. So it's www.meganegillespie.com or sorry, just megangillespie.com. And then um, on Instagram, it's at megangillespie. Megan E. Gillespie. Yes, I know. There's like a thousand <laughs> Megan Gillespies, so we had to throw in an E. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been amazing. I'm going to put all of your information in the show notes, but it is such an honor to have you. <laughs> oh my gosh. It'd be pleasure. On my couch. <laughs> yes, the pleasure was all mine. I love that you got to hear Meg Gillespie in action, especially with the neurobiology of our emotions and how to rewire some of it for a more healthier future and practical ways to kind of have it in our toolbox. I've linked her info in the show notes. Her Instagram is on fire these days. She brings so much value, so much great conversations, and her reels are very funny and very poignant. You can also work with her as she's offering some group coaching programs as well as her private practice. As for me, I appreciate you being on this journey with me. You can get more personal updates and have some of these new insightful episodes delivered right to your inbox by signing up at allisonhair.com. Also, follow me on the socials where I am most active, especially on Instagram. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.